But let's ask for God's help as we turn uh, to this part of his word. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that you have something to say to each one of us tonight. Lord, please give us uh, ears to hear your word. Give us soft hearts to respond to it in just the right way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, what's so good about being a Christian? You might be able to answer that question really easily. Maybe there are uh, tons of thoughts flooding your mind. But there will be times in our lives when we find that question really, really hard to answer. What's so good about being a Christian anyway? The Christian life is tough, and as months and years and decades go by, we can feel ourselves becoming not defined by the energy and enthusiasm which perhaps we once had in following the Lord, but by weariness, by disenchantment, by negativity. So sometimes we'll need to be deliberate in reminding ourselves of just what's so great about life in Jesus' kingdom. Our passage tonight is going to help us to do just that. Today we see David's reign over Israel begin. And as we uh, go through this chapter, we'll see all the good that God brings to David's kingdom, his people, uh, time and time again. Uh, This passage will help us to count our blessings and to remember all the goodness that we enjoy if we're Christians when we belong to Jesus' kingdom. Uh, So let's get started in verses 1 to 5 with the shepherd king. Verses 1 to 5, the shepherd king. The start of our passage is a huge turning point in the story of Samuel. It's a huge turning point in the history of Israel and in the life of David, after all the ups and downs of his life, David finally become kings, becomes king of all Israel. Look at verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Flick down to verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. Now notice that the the people of Israel, uh, the tribes that had been rebelling, uh, they aren't dragged kicking and screaming to anoint David. Uh, They're not persuaded to recognize him as king at the pointy end of a sword. After years of rebellion and rejection, their submission to David is entirely voluntary. So why the turnaround? Well, it it seems that these people, they simply came to their senses and realized what a good king David was. In verses 1 to 3, they give three clear reasons why they want David to be their king. The first one we can see in verse 1, he's one of their own. They say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. We might say their own flesh and blood. Much better to be ruled by an Israelite like David, than had to submit to one of the the foreign powers that were constantly threatening Israel, like Egypt or Syria or the Philistines. Uh, We'll get to them a little bit later. 
so firstly, he's one of their own. Uh, secondly, he's already proved himself to be a great leader. In verse 2, they say, In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. This king they're submitting to wasn't a, a coddled prince who had never been outside of the palace, but the brave warrior who had been leading Israel out to victory against their enemies, even when he wasn't king. He was the one whose name had rung out in the streets of Israel as they shouted, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Following David wasn't a risky move. They'd already enjoyed the benefits of his leadership. Finally, and most importantly, David is God's king. Look at the second half of verse 2. They say, The Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. God has chosen David to rule Israel, but not as a, a tyrant, not as a despot to exploit and oppress his people, but as a shepherd king to protect and care for them. Now, put it like that, and submitting to David doesn't really sound like a bad deal at all, does it? It doesn't just seem like the, the sensible option, but a remarkably wonderful one. One of their own people who's proved his leadership in the crucible of war personally chosen by God himself to lovingly lead them. Well, who wouldn't want to serve a king like that? So after years of fierce rebe rebellion, the Israelites finally and happily submit to David, anointing him king. And God's promise made all those years ago to a little shepherd boy from the town of Bethlehem is finally fulfilled. Well, it's a wonderfully happy moment for God's people because David is a wonderfully good king. And under his reign, things are about to get even better for God's people. But before we see that, let's remind ourselves that those who follow the Lord Jesus have an even better king than David. Bowing the knee to Jesus, like we've thought so much about in our time in the book of Samuel, it's not like submitting to a dictator or a bully who wants to harm us. It means entrusting ourselves to the, the care of the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. When you're struggling to follow the Lord Jesus, remind yourself what a good and kind king he is. And if you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, can, can I invite you to come to this wonderfully good king? One thing we never want to do here at Duke Street is put pressure on anyone uh, to become a Christian. We think that's wrong. But there is another side of the coin that we also want to say, don't put it off. Don't delay. Jesus is such a good thing that I've never heard a Christian say, I wish I'd left it later to come to him. In fact, our regret is often that we didn't come to him, we didn't bow our knee to him sooner. Jesus is the wonderful shepherd king chosen by God. There's no one better 
to trust your life to than him. Well, that's the shepherd king. Now it's time to see what life in his kingdom is like. Let's look at verses 6 to 16, the exalted kingdom. Verses 6 to 16. Now in these verses, we see David's reign kick into gear. Uh, What will be top of this new king's agenda? Uh, Is it economic growth uh, or defense or housing? Well, not exactly. Uh, Number one on David's priority list is faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. And we might miss that as we uh, read the exciting action in verses 6 to 10. Uh, But before the the tale of daring do that is David's conquest of Jerusalem, uh, the author gives us a clue as to why capturing uh, this city is of first importance to David. Look at verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. That sentence uh, should act a little bit like a time machine, uh, zapping us back into the history of the Bible, to the days of Joshua, uh, when God brought his people into the promised land and commanded them to conquer it and to kick out the wicked people who lived there, the, the inhabitants of the land, like it says here. That was God's clear command, but it was a task that Israel failed. They were unwilling to follow God's commands to the letter and therefore unable to complete the task he'd given. You don't need to turn there, but Joshua chapter 15 verse 63 tells us the Jebusites, the inhabitants of of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So imagine the Jebusites, this, uh, this tribe on their hilltop fortress, slap bang in the middle of God's promised land, standing generation after generation as a reminder of Israel's failure, of their unfaithfulness to God. And so David begins his reign here by righting the wrongs of Israel's past. He takes his men and marches on Jerusalem. Now you can hear the snarl on the lips of these fierce enemies of the king as they hurl insults at him, confident that even the weakest of them could fend fend him off. You will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off. And their confidence probably came from the great fortress on the, the hill of Zion. Surrounded by steep cliffs all around, they clearly considered it unassailable. Just like the people of Judah all those generations ago, this new king stood no chance of kicking them out. Seeing David off would be so easy, they could do it with their eyes closed. But their confidence was misplaced. I love the way it's phrased in verse 7, after all their confidence. Just a, a simple sentence, offhand almost. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is, the city of David. David starts his reign by doing this, the impossible, taking this unconquerable fortress with ease. What a fantastic result for a new king. A historic victory, a new city, and a new fortress to reign from. 
And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, a neighboring king turns up and decides to build David a house. Look at verse 11. Uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. This wasn't a two-up, two-down in a quiet cul-de-sac, but a house fit for a king, a magnificent palace made with the best building materials around. Oh, what a nice surprise. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? What's the secret behind David's success? We're told in verse 10. And David became greater and greater, for he was a military genius. No, that's, that's not what it says. David became greater and greater, for he was a political powerhouse. That's not what it says either. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. All of these wonderful blessings come straight from the generous hand of God. And we know that because the author has helpfully told us. But it was no mystery to David either. He knew it too. Look at verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. That word established, it carries the, the sense of something being firm or permanent. Uh, you often see it related to, to brands or shops that want to impress you with how long they've been going. By giving David a, a city of his own, a fortress and a palace, the Lord was giving David all he needed to successfully reign over Israel. David's kingdom wasn't going anywhere. And that was very good news. Not just for David, David, but for his people too. You can see that at the end of verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. The story of Samuel has been a story of exaltation, that word which means to raise up. It's where we started with Hannah's prayer back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah prays, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The humble being lifted up and the mighty being cast down is what we've seen throughout this book. It's the pattern in which our God works. And we've seen that in David's life, going from zero to hero, from humble shepherd boy to king. But it isn't just David's story. Under his faithful leadership, this is now all Israel's story. God raises David up, establishes his kingdom, and the people of the kingdom are raised, exalted with him to enjoy blessing after blessing from God's generous hand. And it's the same with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. He's a wonderful king, and those in his kingdom receive wonderful blessings from him.
Do you remember what our opening scripture told us right at the start of the service? Belonging to Jesus' kingdom doesn't just mean experiencing lots of God's blessings or nearly all of God's blessings. Paul says God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Because of our king's perfect obedience and faithfulness, we enjoy the blessing of total and perfect forgiveness. Knowing that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the the dirt of our failure. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Because we're united to Christ, we know the blessing of being adopted into God's family. Jesus' father becomes our father. (laughs) That's just scratching the surface. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that's before we even think about the blessings of being part of the, the expression of God's kingdom here on earth, being part of the church. Isn't it easy to forget how good it is to be part of the church? Church life can become very familiar to us very quickly. Sometimes we're tempted to write its blessings off as, well, just ordinary, but they really aren't. I was struck by this myself around a year ago. Uh, Emma and I had just had our little girl, Sophie, and many of you were generous enough to provide us meals um, in those first few weeks of her life. In fact, uh, you were so generous as a church that I almost forgot how to cook. Now, that was a tremendous blessing to us. It's tempting, isn't it, to just say, well, yeah, that's just kind of normal stuff, though, isn't it? That's just what we do. When we told um, some of our friends in our kind of new parents group who don't go to church that we hadn't cooked a meal for several weeks, you should have seen their faces. They were impressed. They were surprised. They were green with envy. That meal train was a tremendous blessing to us at a time when we really needed it. It wasn't just a normal thing. It was a blessing that came from being part of a loving church family. Can you think of a time when belonging to a church has been a real blessing to you? Well, I hope you can. Being part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus is so good And part of that we enjoy by being part of a church. When being part of God's kingdom feels really, really hard, can I encourage you to count your blessings? God has exalted the kingdom of his son, and we get to be part of it. Well, we can count our blessings now, but we also need to know that the greatest blessings of God's kingdom are yet to come. And we get a taste of those blessings to come in our our final section, verses 17 to 25, the victorious kingdom. David's reign has got off to a great start, but not everybody is happy about it. In verse 17, we see an old enemy rear their ugly head and set out to obliterate this fledgling kingdom. Verse 17 
when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Doesn't sound like they wanted to drop round a card of congratulations, does it? It seems they saw a united kingdom of Israel as a threat. So what better way to put an end to this kingdom than putting an end to the king himself? This is a, a Philistine attack on an unprecedented scale. All the Philistines went up, and they spread out like ants in the valley, ready to make war on the king and to end the threat of Israel for good. And in the face of this extreme aggression and great danger, what does Israel's new king do? He does what every faithful king should do. He takes it to the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. This is verse 19. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? Despite the crown on his head, despite sitting on the throne, David remembers who is really in charge, who the true king of Israel is. And the Lord responds to his king's faithfulness with a tidal wave of victory. In obedience to God's word and his promise, David attacks the Philistines, whose armies are swept away. David says, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. In verse 21, uh, we're told that this attack was so devastating that the Philistines fled Uh, leaving their idols, probably the the statues of their gods behind, to be captured and carried away by David and his men. Does that remind you of anything? Well, might be impressed if it does, because we started this book of, uh, well, we started the book of 1 Samuel uh, a fair few months ago now. But remember where this story started. Israel, led by unfaithful leaders, who wanted God to serve them. Do you remember the sorrow and the horror when the Lord allowed the Philistines to defeat his people and capture the symbol of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant, carrying it off to put in the temple of their God, Dagon? It was a terrible thing to read. It was a terrible thing to happen. And here we see the God of great reversal, giving a great reversal to his people. Now that Israel are united under a truly faithful king, it's as if all the damage done by Israel's sin and rebellion against God is being totally reversed. In verses 22 to 24, we see that reversal completed. Again, the enemy sets out to destroy God's people, verse 22. And again, the king responds with faithfulness to the Lord, verse 23. Again, the Lord responds by giving overwhelming victory to his king, verse 24. And in verse 25, we're told, David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This time, it's game over for the Philistines. Never again will they trouble God's people or threaten his kingdom. Can you imagine the relief 
that the Israelites must have felt as this fierce and brutal enemy that had caused them so much death and suffering for so many years, that had sought to enslave and exterminate them on so many different occasions, were finally defeated. Can you hear the cries of celebration that would have rung out from the streets of Israel's towns and cities? Well, those celebrations are nothing in comparison to the relief and joy and celebration we will enjoy and be part of when God grants total victory to our king. When the enemies of sin and death are finally put in the ground forever. When God's kingdom truly and finally comes. When the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. When God himself will wipe every tear from the eyes of his people, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. What a day that will be. What a victory that will be. What a kingdom that will be. And if Jesus is your king, you'll be there. You'll be there to enjoy all the blessings your faithful king has won for you in his kingdom forever.